real estate's not really a great get rich quick scheme. There's too many risks or, or pitfalls that we could get into. And I think you just got to have a nice long-term focus and, you know, stay the course, live simply. And I think, you know, the balance sheet will take care of you if you take care of it. Hello, and welcome to the podcast for Patriots. I'm your host, Jim Fralick. I ain't rich, but I damn sure want to be. Working like a dog all day ain't working for me. I wish I had a rich uncle that'd kick the bucket and I was sitting on a pile like Warren Buffett. I know everybody says money can't buy happiness, but it can buy me a boat. Our goal here with Podcast for Patriots is to educate, inspire, and assist military members and veterans in achieving financial wealth through real estate investing. Hello, fellow Patriots. Hope you're having a good day today. I'm happy today to be introducing you to a friend and real estate colleague, uh, Mr. Jonathan Child. Uh, John is a full-time real estate investor. Uh, He's a young guy. I think he's still 20-something. He's got some multi-units, some single families. Uh, he's a University of New Hampshire graduate. He's a member of the Army National Guard, I think, and I'll let him tell us a little more about that. And I know he's part of a mastermind group. I know he runs a, a Seacoast multifamily meetup down in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which I've attended a few times. And he's just got a lot of stuff going on. Very positive type of guy. And I'm super excited. Let him add value to this podcast today. So, Jonathan, do you hear me? Five bye. Hey, Jim here, and uh, thanks for the, the warm welcome. Awesome. So, hey, uh, Jonathan, I gave people a little sketch on your background as I know it. Do you want to fill in some details and let us know how you got from you know high school graduation till now? Yeah, happy to, Jim. You said most of it. Uh, I jumped into the University of New Hampshire after graduating high school. Probably some in February, actually, of my my freshman year, I decided to join the Army National Guard. Um, I had a whole lot of friends who were doing that, and I said, hey, why don't I do that? And so I joined an infantry unit, and at the same time, I was in ROTC, but I thought I was, I was, thought I was too cool for ROTC, so I just went full enlisted and uh, was a specialist in, in a mortar section of, of our, our little infantry company. And uh, I did that for six years. You know, I, I look back on it with a lot of nostalgia and uh, really enjoyed it. Not in it anymore, and hey, you know, I didn't deploy or, or do anything really particularly fancy. So certainly, you know, my my military resume pales in comparison to some of the people you've had on the podcast. Um, but I, I really enjoyed it, and and you know, simultaneously while I was in, I graduated college, and and I wasn't sure what the heck I was going to do with my life. And that's when I realized that my dad has always been in real estate, and I never appreciated it until I need to get a job. And uh, <laughs> I, so I basically turned to him and I said, "Hey, I don't really want to get a job. Uh, what should I do?" And he's like, well, why don't you buy a property? And so, you know, I picked up like a copy of Rich Dad, Poor Dad and a couple other kind of books of that nature. And I said, okay, now I get it. And I was like, wow, I can't believe what my dad's done all these years. And and I never really understood or appreciated it. So with that, I bought a foreclosed duplex. I got a hard money loan from, of course, my family. And I basically turned that property around. And I was fortunate that it was in a rising market. So, you know, the short, the short of it is I bought it for 175. I put about 100 into it. But it's really worth more, like four hundred, and so it was a nice, it was a nice turnaround in value. 
And I got to live there. I got to get rental income from it. I lived pretty lean. And the whole time I was just thinking to myself, you know, how do I get to the next step here? And, you know, how do I get to property number two? Um, lately, I've had a term saying, you know, deal number one is neat, but deal number two is a business. And so I was focused on getting deal number two. And, you know, the whole time I was renovating that property, I thought, you know, I'm kind of interested in this out-of-state model. Everything in my area just seemed overpriced or old and beat up. And I had been schlepping buckets of plaster up and down stairs that whole time. So I thought, I'm not sure I want to do this a whole lot of time. So I actually bought three single-family homes um, out-of-state, you know, for one, to try that market uh, and just kind of get an understanding of how what's it like to, out, you know, to do out-of-state investing. And quite frankly, it worked out really great. And I was, you know, just really psyched where that's, where that's gone. And, and so, you know, my focus since then, um, which was in 2017, that is, my focus since then has been um, just looking for more out-of-state properties. And so the, the, I guess the latest news is I have a 28-unit property and I'm really thrilled about that. So That's awesome. And that's quite a quick, that amount of experience sounds like you're like 40. So that's pretty amazing. <laughs> you're, on, you're on a fast track and uh, that's what I found most amazing about you from the several months that uh that I've known you or uh, had a chance to be around you. So uh, thanks for sharing that, especially the Too Cool for Razi. I appreciate that, having been a Air Force ROTC guy at Georgia Tech many, many years ago. Uh, that's pretty funny, but I get where that's coming from. <laughs> it was my own boneheadedness. Your whole path there, uh, super interesting. So I know you have what I like to call an early warning signal for listeners. Early warning systems online. General quarters, general quarters, man your battle stations. This is not a drill. Repeat, this is not a drill. Uh, because you've had to have experienced a couple uh, hard lessons already. Wondering uh, if you'll share one with us. Yeah, you bet, Jim. Um, I think one of the biggest lessons I learned, again, it was from this duplex that I renovated. You know, for one, the house was old. It was built in 1890. And there's so many little tasks to do things right that just takes so much more time than I think I ever would have anticipated. And, you know, not only time, but money. And I think that newer investors just always seem to glaze over, you know, the fact that you got to put a drip edge on the roof. And if, you know, your roofers don't put the drip edge on there, you're going to have rot all up the sheathing and the joists and the rafter tails. And I mean, that's just one small example, but it's just, you know, we're dealing with real property here. And, you know, if you neglect things like little things like that, I think it's going to add up and be costly. And I think oftentimes as newer investors, we get really laser focused on our spreadsheet and saying, you know, we're going to make a 10% return and here's why, and here's what our maintenance is going to be. And, and I'm, it's good. And it's good to be really intimate with your numbers, but there's numbers and then there's reality. And so I guess that that's what my warning is, is that you can't let your numbers distract you from what reality is going to be. I've lived that and I can appreciate it for sure. Yeah. So especially in new England, that drip edge is important. So I appreciate that early warning signal, Jonathan. So now I want to ask you, and you've kind of already given clues away on this one, but I like to ask people well, whether their their philosophy is more about opportunity investing, geographically based, asset based, or niche. And it sounds like your thinking on this has evolved. But what's your what's your overall strategy going forward relative to those four? Oh, you know that's a great question. Um, I was actually a geography major in college, and so I think I would lean on that. Um, you know, location is certainly important. You know, you got to be in markets that you either have faith in or you know, um, or just happen to be booming. You know, there's there's obviously there's a there's a there's a thousand ways to skin a cat on that. But I would I would say you know it's number one is asset class, and then number two is location to me. You know, asset class. I'm always interested in, in looking at things like retail or shopping centers or 
you know, or, or other sort of a commercial, you know, commercial real estate space. But it all just boils back down to me that, you know, everybody needs a place to live and you just got to need to provide nice housing. And I think that that's just a, a very sustainable business model in the long run. So that would be the asset class. And then, I mean, for me, geography is, is New Hampshire and then uh, Little Rock, Arkansas as well, which is where those, uh, those single family turnkeys are. Okay. Good answer. You are my first, as far as I know, you're my first geography major. I didn't even know people majored in geography anymore. So we're going to have to talk <laughs> offline about that. Like, I don't know. I don't know if you, do. You, just real quick aside, do you have to like learn GIS systems as part of that? Is there a technology element or is it really about, what, what does a geography major learn besides where things are? Well, you could get uh, a Bachelor of Science and, and major in GIS, at least through UNH. There happens to be a really, really uh, well-known professor for GIS who's there. My degree was a BA in geography, so it's kind of more of like the liberal arts side of it. Um, but I did take a number of uh, remote sensing and, and GIS courses, and I actually really liked those. I thought the technical side was, was quite fun. And it was also sort of interesting to just see, you know, the compatibility of that versus, you know, let's just say you had a paper on on something, you know, that more liberal arts-like. Like, for instance, maybe you wanted to get an understanding of, you know, what's the economics of, uh, of you know, how, what are the economics of, of a, you know, a neighborhood or a region if there's, you know, more banks or something. And so then you could map that, and then you could kind of come up with your thesis and then sort of, under, you know, figure out why. So, I mean, it's really insightful, the amount of things you can learn from a map. I mean, a a lesson for geography for real estate investors is, you know, where do you want to invest? I think a good example in the South would be is if you find Starbucks and Whole Foods, you're probably in a rich neighborhood. And maybe that's not a bad place to, uh, you know, to invest in real estate. Sure. Especially if you got there early, get there before, right before those are built. No, so that's that's uh, fascinating, especially in the modern era of of mapping things, location, and all the things you can get out of that. So uh, thanks for sharing that. That was a side note. Can you take the time to share some rough numbers on deals or kind of give us an insight on what you think is a good ROI if you were looking at a new deal? Yeah, I would be happy to. Um, so, you know, the 28 unit is kind of top of mind. I think it's going to kind of coincide with a philosophy on real estate investing. But my take is that there's no get-rich-quick schemes and having short-term loans. I just think it's not a good business because if you're stuck with it, things could get ugly. So I really like longer, you know, more predictable loans. And I think that the, you know, the returns coincide with that. So for instance, with this 28 unit, it's townhouse style property. It's a very simple cash flow play. There's really very minimal operating expenses because there's no utilities and, you know, there's no interior hallways or anything of that nature. Again, it's townhomes. So everybody has an exterior entrance. The cash return on that looks to be about 11% year over year. You know, I think that that's a pretty good number. And, and to coincide with that, I got pretty good loan terms as far as I'm concerned. And the debt service coverage ratio is about 1.8. So it's well above what banks typically want to see. And I mean, that's a number I guess I would really emphasize to listeners. You know, debt service coverage ratio is just a really good sounding board because it's for every dollar you're paying the bank or or rather for every dollar you're paying towards your loan, how much are you taking away? So if it's 1.8, the bank gets a dollar, I get 80 cents. And I think that that's a pretty good measure, you know, to understand. Let me ask you to dig in a little bit more on a couple of those things. So I'm new, and this is my first podcast I ever listened to on real estate. So rewind and break the break that down for me again, if you can. The 11 percent. What you mean by 11 percent? Is it cash on cash or something else? And then what does that mean if it's cash on cash? And then that that debt to service coverage ratio. What is that? Absolutely. So the 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 11 percent is a cash on cash return. So for instance, you know the, the down payment is, is four hundred twenty thousand on the property. So an eleven percent cash return is is giving us you know roughly fifty thousand in cash flow every year. So it's it's the fifty thousand divided by four hundred twenty thousand, and that you know 
you know, yield a number of roughly 11%. It obviously fluctuates just depending on how you, you put together capital expenditures or maintenance or whatnot. I mean, technically, you shouldn't have capital expenditures in there. It's it just some of that is kind of semantical. But, you know, just suffice to say, it's basically the amount of cash flow you're getting over how much you put into the deal. The net the net profit, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like a net profit. That's that's a good point. And then debt service coverage ratio, it's a it's basically a function of, you know, you have a net income, which is, you know, you, you have your gross income and then you subtract out all of your operating expenses and you're left with what's called a net operating income. Well, that net operating income is before your debt service. So when you when you take your debt service and you divide it by your net operating income, you're going to get a number. And for banks, it's typically it's got to hit at least 1.2, which means that again, it's for every dollar you pay the bank, you're getting 20 cents. Well, if the minimum is 1.2, or oftentimes it's 1.3, I'd say get way above that, and you want something more like 1.8. So or let's just say two. So you know, if your net income is, is 20,000. And you know you want your debt service to be uh, five thousand or ten thousand, and that's going to give you you know a, a really strong debt service coverage ratio. Did that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for breaking that down, uh, Jonathan. What's the state of these twenty-eight units? You have some value add going on there. Are they all they're all rented out right now? It's actually fully rented and it's fairly stabilized. You know, it's just it's just a really simple property. They're all two bedroom, two bath units with a little patio and a kitchen, and the parking's right out front. Um, I mean, what I liked about it was just that it's a really simple, a really simple layout. And to coincide with this, you know, I had been living off of a lot of my income from that duplex. And so when I conducted this second refi, which was actually a VA loan, I was pretty much losing all of that income because of the amount of debt service that we're putting on it. And so I needed to plow it into something that would be a predictable, um, but B just, you know, simple, stable cash flow. Uh, there's a broker term out there for commercial real, commercial brokers where they'll say, this is a great balance sheet builder. And I personally really hate hearing them say that term, but that's not a bad description in this case. It's really just like a simple balance sheet builder for me. And I mean, furthermore, and, and I think I might be jumping the gun a little bit just for further questions you're going to ask. It's kind of a launching pad for me to find more properties and start to partner with people because I want to be able to provide people you know, some confidence that I know what I'm doing. And, and I think getting a larger property like that on my own We'll start to give me some of that acumen. Okay. Thanks for sharing that, Jonathan. That sounds like a good, solid deal. I like it. For newer investors, I won't say younger because we can see this is not age dependent, but for newer investors, uh, people in the military or new veterans, what advice might you have, Jonathan, for people with little money or poor credit who want to get involved in real estate? You know, that's a great question because we all got to start somewhere and, and it's, it, real estate is, a, is an interesting asset because it's funny that it's it's kind of tied to investing because I, in my opinion, real estate is really more of a business. I mean, you can invest passively in other people's deals, but to get started, you know, and you don't have a lot of money. I mean, at least if you're from the military background, I think the best thing you could do is use a VA loan, you know, have some good cash in the bank, but then, you know, take your VA loan with a zero down and just buy like a really simple, you know, two or three unit property, maybe of course, four units if you could find it. And I would say, you know, really the, the best thing you could do is just is just learn from experience. Uh, you know, you buy something like that, you get them rented, you kind of learn how to do the customer service, the tenants, you know, you understand sort of how a leases works. And you start to just see, you know, the complaints that they constantly have, like, you know, parking or snow plowing or, hey, our heat's never working. I think just the small lessons of managing a, a simple property, like a two or four unit property, it'll just give you so much more experience for you to be able to say, hey, you know, I really love this and I want to find more four units or, you know, I think I want to go find a 28 unit and, and just be able to grow from there. 
and you know, with that said, there's nothing wrong with just getting a couple, you know, simple, you know, maybe you just get two or three, four units and that's all you need as well. Um, cause this will always just be a side hustle. You know, I would, I would again kind of circle back to the point of, I never really looked at real estate as an investing vehicle. It's really more of a business in my opinion. And then it just happens to have kind of the same effect of investing, which is income. Okay. Great answer. Speaking of that, that reminds me, I think the very first time uh, we ever talked, Jonathan, you mentioned that you were managing properties and you may have uh, taken over the management of your father's portfolio. You mentioned earlier, we didn't uh, appreciate the head nod to, to your dad. Uh, lots of times kids kids forget the things their parents try to do to pave the way for them. Are you managing properties right now for your father? Is that something you do because you have some property management experience, sounds like? Yeah, yeah. So I, I manage his portfolio, which is about 34 units for him now. You know, nice portfolio. It, it's in a really nice area. It's, it's in Dover, New Hampshire, that is. The management is interesting. It, it can be really kind of a time sink. But I would say that, you know, the, the on-ground sort of direct experience is pretty invaluable to anybody who wants to, you know, grow bigger and, and you know, in the real estate world. You're just not going to get a better a better experience than, you know, just learning it <laughs> direct, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I That's a big responsibility. I know uh, Carrie, my wife, she's managing a few properties and Airbnb as well. And boy, I have a lot of respect. 34 units is a lot of, a lot of tenants to deal with. I don't want any part of it personally. Well, that might be a better business model. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So kudos to you for um, doing that. And, and at such a young age, uh, I'm sure you've had, would have a few more stories to tell if we went down that, down that rabbit hole, but we'll, I'll save that for a different time. Uh, again, I know you're a pretty young guy, but even within this short time that you've been involved in real estate, if you could go back to the very beginning, uh, what would you do differently, if anything? Funny. I mean, I got so many good lessons from from owning and and you know, personally renovating this duplex. But in some ways, I think maybe a better model would have just been going out of state from the beginning. I mean, I I say that, but you know, on the flip side, I maybe perhaps wouldn't have learned all the lessons that I have from that property, which you know have been able to drive some good decision making in the future. So I'm not sure I really would change anything. Um, you know, thinking back, but I think getting you know out of state faster. Uh, may have been smarter. It just seems so much more scalable, and it really doesn't kill your time uh, when you have you know other people managing it, and it's kind of out of sight, out of mind in a sense. I mean, of course, that has risks associated. You got to make sure that you know the properties are performing well and in good condition and whatnot. But I think that it's just a better way to scale a business, if if that's the goal at least. Okay, I don't know. This is a good question, but I keep leaving it in because. Uh, technically, I, I never believe it's it's that good to go back in time unless something catastrophic happened, right? It's the like, butterfly effect. Mm. You could turn left or turn right two days ago and, and you could be dead today. So I don't like that overall, maybe. I'll, but, the, but the overall theme of what you're trying to get from it is just another lesson learned of what you might uh, do differently if you could advise someone. So I think that's good advice. I think that's a, a really good point you make about that. Depending on what your goals are, if your goals are you really want to get hands-on from the start, because you want to learn the property management side or, or whatever, you want to be able to see it every day, then going local would be a focus. But if you really want to do it as a business long-term and scale it up, make large amounts of money, you just have to look where the opportunity is, right? Yeah, I think that's a really good summary, Jim. You know, and, and I think that the decisions to you know, stay local, stay hands-on, or, or go out of state, or what, or what have you, even those are, are really just vehicles from what you know is a, probably most people's goal, which is financial freedom. So I think that you know it's kind of got to start there. Like you know, hey, wh- what is it you're trying to achieve, either out of life or out of some sort of an income goal? I mean, sometimes the income goals are silly because I mean, you could say, hey, I want to you know have two hundred fifty thousand in passive income, 
And so if I buy all my properties at an 8% cap rate, I just got to go get $3 million worth of real estate and own it all. And I mean, you could say stuff like that, but you know, once you have that $250,000 income, that might not do it. Or, you know, maybe there's something wrong here because you're trapped managing your properties or something. I think it's got to kind of got to boil down from a goal of, of originally the financial freedom. And then you sort of, you know, can retrofit steps in and, and Hey, direct property management, it, it can also be really gratifying. I mean, when your tenants are happy and, and they see, you know, you care, that can be a really gratifying business. And it's also a way to get known around town, quite frankly. And, and, and in some ways that could be a bad thing, but I would say it's a good thing if you want to be local in your market. <laughs> yeah. Good, good addition there. Yeah. Known around town. You could be known, known in a bad way or you could be known in a good way. I like that. The, uh, yeah. yeah, I think it does come to goals. That's a, that's a good point. I think when I came back to real estate a few years ago and I really just focused first around what's, what's the monetary goal at the end and was listening to a podcast where the guy said, you know, make sure you love this business. Like, don't do this if you don't love it. And I was like, ah, that's BS. Everybody knows the money's in real estate. But as I've learned the last few years and as I've got, done the podcast and uh, reached out to people and st- sort of finding my uh, areas of focus, I do come back to sort of an overall life lesson of, 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 of do what you love and have found the things that I love. Like focus on those things you love uh, because a lot of people say, the beginning, well, I want to do wholesale. I want to do house flipping. Then they get in house flipping and they're five years down the road. I've run into some of these people and they feel more trapped and more busy and unhappy than they thought they were going to be going in. So thanks for sharing that that angle, Jonathan. So uh, I know you mentioned Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is, seems to be timeless. I was I was your age when I first read it, or maybe a year older than you, <laughs> and it had just come out. And come back to that series of books time and again, but it's just amazing how the mindset of that book gets so many people started, and, and especially people on the real estate side. But beyond Rich Dad, Poor Dad, what other uh, books might you advise or is anything in particular inspired you? Yeah, you know, glad you asked. There's there's two other books that, you know, I think immediately come to mind for me. Both of them are, are real estate related, but they're not necessarily real estate books. And, and in my opinion, that's kind of a good thing because, you know, I mean, if you just continuously read books about property management or net income or something, I think you'll kind of just get bored and throw those books away. You know, I just feel like you can only look at that so much. But two books I found really helpful was one, The Good Earth. It's actually kind of like a, an old classic. It's by a guy named Buck. But I love The Good Earth because it, it talks about a farmer who, uh, in China, that is. It talks about a farmer who originally was just farming other people's land. And he worked hard, and, and eventually he was able to own his own land. And he basically built an entire farming empire. And I just thought it was just an incredible story about, you know, this guy's struggle and trying to feed his family and, and get through that. And the lesson to take away from it really is, you know, if you own property, you're probably going to have a good legacy to, to share with your family, you know, in the long run. Again, that, that book is, is The Good Earth by Pearl S. Buck. The other book I really like is, is completely different, but it's called King of Capital. And it's about Steve Schwartzman, who founded Blackstone, uh, kind of one of the famed hedge funds or private equity companies, which is, I think, now public um, in Wall Street. And it just kind of it opened my eyes to just kind of the high-flying, big-time deal-making that can happen in the real estate world. And just a fascinating story and seeing them, you know, kind of go through down part, you know, down markets and up markets and just how they were able to navigate through that and always make money and sometimes have crushing, you know, crushing failure. But it was only that failure was always isolated. And I think that both of those books can be really useful to people who, you know, kind of want to scale a real estate business. Yeah, those are great inputs. I'm not familiar with the King of Capital. I am familiar with the good Earth by Pearl Buck. There's a throwback from the old days. My, yeah. One of my wife's favorite books from years and years ago. So 
nobody's brought up the good earth before, Jonathan. You're like an old soul, you know. I can I picture you being like a professor, just a super wealthy uh, professor with all these properties someday, with a pipe and walking around the UNH campus, bestowing your your, your nuggets of wisdom on these young people. Um, I'm gonna look up this king of capital though. It sounds uh, interesting. So thanks for sharing those, John. Yeah, you bet. You know, both of those were cool books. Um, I'm glad to hear that's one of your your life's favorite books. I I um definitely kind of an old soul move on my part. My girlfriend actually was the one who gave me that book recommendation though, and we were flying to Europe actually for a little trip together, and I like read it cover to cover on the flight there because I was just loved it, and and so that was kind of cool. I definitely think you'll like King of Capital, especially with what you're up to in, in kind of the the capital raising and financing world. That should be really insightful. It's on my list now. <laughs> Thanks, John. So you got any last thoughts or uh, nuggets of wisdom for the crowd? Oh, man. Well, you know, again, I I, I greatly appreciate being on the podcast, Jim. You know, this is just, it, it's gratifying to think that, you know, hey, I, you know, hey, I might have some wisdom to bestow on others is, it's kind of gratifying, quite frankly. You know, I think my last takeaway for people is, is actually kind of a, the adage from the good earth, which is in the real estate world, I think it all boils down to building, building a good balance sheet. You know, there's the assets equals equities, you know, owner's equity and liabilities. And at first, the asset column might look good, and but the liability column is really high. And so your owner's equity is low. And I think the goal is to just continuously grow the assets and the owner's equity and see your liabilities go down. It's not, Real estate's not really a great get-rich-quick scheme. There's too many risks or, or pitfalls that we could get into. And I think you just got to have a nice long-term focus and, you know, stay the course, live simply. And I think, you know, the balance sheet will take care of you if you take care of it. I think something that's often overlooked is uh, real estate has customers and it's our tenants. And, you know, you look at any other business and you got to have good customer service. And it's the same thing for us. You know, we've got to be good to our tenants. And of course, they need to, you know, pay and be, and be good to us and respectful as well. But I think that that's often overlooked. You know, we're, you know we get buried in the numbers and, and we're trying to build income or, or, you know, have financial freedom or whatnot. But we can't do that at the expense of people's homes. I mean, you know, we've got to remember it. tenants... Tenants are emotional because, you know, you're dealing with their homes and, and we just have to treat them with respect. And again, I think that that's often overlooked. That's a great point. Excellent. Thank you for, thank you for that, John. So how can, um, and I appreciate you being on here. You, you, you have a lot more wisdom and, and it's, like I said, it's equally impressive uh, given your age. How can the uh, uh, listeners get in touch with you, John? They want to know more about you or your business. Yeah, well, I, I'd say there's LinkedIn. Uh, Jonathan Childs, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, last name Child, C-H-I-L-D. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. You know, I'm not super active on there, but you'll you'll probably find my profile. You know, I'd be more than happy to talk to anybody who's you know interested in talking more about real estate or you know wanted me to clarify something on the, you know from the podcast here. Um, you know, I'm always grateful to meet new people and talk about this. Uh, it's a team sport, so you know we all need each other to to succeed. Excellent, great talking to you, Jonathan. Appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure, Jim. Thanks so much. Hey, and thanks for your service as well. Likewise. I'm proud to be your host. I'm privileged to have served, and I'm grateful for all your sacrifices. Until next time. Because the flag still stands for freedom, and they can't take that away. And I'm proud to be an American.
Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land 